that they, this psalm would have been used by David and the priests as a liturgy when the ark was brought back from, the ark languished in this kind of small town for a couple of decades. And, and at some point, David brought it back into Jerusalem to be installed in the temple. And they said, this is the psalm that would have been used. And we'll talk more about that. In fact, we'll actually, uh, when I was studying this, I was so taken by the backstory here, I thought, what can I use as examples to illustrate the main points of it. And I thought, I'm going to use examples of uh, stories in the Bible that revolve around the Ark of the Covenant. So one story we won't be talking about, just so you know, is the one where the Ark is discovered, but it's stolen by the Nazis to use as a super weapon (laughs) against the Allies, but then is rescued by an American professor. And um, Actually, one of the most difficult things in preparing this sermon was convincing Jordan that that was an apocryphal story. Uh, Now, let's get to the passage. Well, let's look at the passage in sections. Verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. He's founded it upon seas and established it on rivers. Great words. And you read it, and it sounds quite poetic, and they sound like nice words, and there's quite a bounce to the words, but there's so much more than sort of nice poetry saying nice things about God. It's, it's actually making a huge theological statement here, so we'll dig into it. It starts by saying that everything is God. Everything's God's. Other people are his. The dirt is his. It's all his. And so what it's trying to do here is it's trying to convey the extent of God's ownership, his rule, which is absolute So my house, my garden, God owns those. God is the Lord over my Buddhist neighbor. God owns North Korea. I mean, we could just go on and on. It's all God's. And verse 2 follows very logically from verse 1. It says, God owns it all because he created it all. Like a songwriter owns his songs, God made it. It's his. Now, the way it's stated is kind of unusual. And there's more than meets the eye here. I'll just remind you of what it says again. He founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the rivers. I mean, why not just say, he, just, he made it all. It's, it's really great. Why, why mention the seas and the rivers? Well, there was this common uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, creation story involving these two powerful gods called Yam and Nahar. And uh, you can sort of Google the story. It's, it sort of reads a bit like a soap opera. There's a, you know, there's a battle involving Yam and Nahar, and I think there's a bit of romance. And in the end, there's the world, basically. And uh, according to the Mesopotamian myth, that's how the world came about. So the nations surrounding Israel, they were terrified of these two gods, Yam and Nahar, because they were involved in the creation story battle thing. And now here's the reveal. The Hebrew words Yam and Nahar, how do you translate those? Anyone want to guess there? Sea and river. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God is saying, yam, yam, shmam. You know, there is is one Lord. He created everything. And your sea gods, your river gods, it's just liquid. It's just liquid. And I, I I I just made the word by sticking dirt on your gods. It's, this, it's basically a full frontal assault on the idol worship of the day. There is one Lord. He made everything. It's his. 
Moving on. Have, have a look at verse 3 and 4. Slide your eyes over there. The next logical question stated, and it is quite logical, if it's true, if God made it all, who can be in the presence of this holy creator God? And the answer is the one who, four things, clean hands, pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear falsely. This is not an arbitrary list. I think it's quite a sobering list. And and what it does is it addresses all aspects of our life. It addresses our whole life. The clean hands, it's clean hands, it's talking about what we do. And a pure heart, that's the interior life. A good example is Pontius Pilate. You remember when, when Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to the cross, you remember he washes his hands. I wash my hands of this. Not my fault, not my problem. Technically, technically he had clean hands, but he had an impure heart. Three, do not lift up your soul to what is false. It's talking about worship, and the word false there, it means empty. You can't come to God if you've sort of, you can't be in relationship with God and at the same time basically give your life over to vacuous things, the things which are this thin. And we'll talk more about that shortly. Last one, don't swear deceitfully. Don't lie. So who can come into the presence of this holy creator God? The one who has pure thoughts, pure words, pure actions, and pure motives. Now right now you might be thinking, goodness, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble here. Because who's that person? Well, there's no one but Jesus. But the point, I think, of this quite sobering list is not to prevent the pilgrim from entering the tabernacle into the presence of God. The point is to ensure that when this person does it, it's with a pursuit of holiness in mind. So the passage says, The person, the generation that is seeking after the Lord. Because you're not going to earn your place in God's presence by obeying the rules. No, verses 5 and 6. Salvation and righteousness, your right to get in there, that is given to you by God. It is a gift from God. So, of course, given that gift, you seek after him and you desire to live well uh, with your whole life because God has saved you. Now, let me illustrate that point with a great story about the ark from 1 Samuel that helps to sort of illustrate this whole thing here. Okay, so the ark of the covenant, do you know what that is? That's, you know, it was basically a big box, maybe, I don't know, like two feet by four feet, and uh, covered in gold, two solid gold angels, cherubim on the top, and it housed some very important things, a couple of very important things, uh, the most famous of which was the Ten Commandments, written on stone tablets with the finger of God. But it wasn't just really fancy or important religious furniture. Let me tell you why I say that. We would not survive if we were exposed to God's, like 100% God's glory. Bam, we wouldn't wouldn't survive. So the ark was this very special thing that God gave his people in the Old Testament, a way for people to experience some of God's glory, a way for God to be with his people in a special way without being crushed by his holiness. So, the story. 1 Samuel 6, if you want to read it yourself. Well, sort of 4 to 6. Uh, so you've got Israel and a uh, little country. It's surrounded by the Philistines. And the Philistines were um, uh, expansionist. This 
That's a nice way of saying it. And uh, anyway, they, they went to war, as you do. This is about 1100 BC. And, and uh, they got defeated. The Israelites were defeated by the Philistines. And they were quite surprised by this fact. This was a surprise to them. And they were thinking, how did this happen? And they go, and somebody goes, I know what didn't happen. We didn't have the ark. We should have rolled out the ark with us. Then it would have been you know, no problem. So anyway, so they have another battle, as you do. And they, they, this time they bring the ark with them. So they've got their battle camp. And they bring the ark into the middle of the camp. And the Philistines get wind of the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is with the Israelites. They completely freak out, but they don't take off. They think, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just, you know, you've got to die sometime. Let's just, let's just, let's just uh, I'm trying to think of an American phrase. Let's give it a college try and, and, go, and just go out, go out with a bang, basically. We'll just go out with a bang. We're going to get killed. They've got the Ark, right? Anyway, so that's what they do. They go in there, and they give it a college try, and they give it a really good crack, and they win, the Philistines beat the Israelites again. And not only do they beat them, they capture the ark. So the Israelites, goodness, where did they go wrong? Well, they didn't pray and they didn't seek God about the battle. They just thought, oh, let's just roll out the, let's just, let's just roll out the, let's just roll out the cool stuff. And, you know, we'll just take it with us into battle and, and God will just sort it out. And it didn't happen and they were hugely shocked by this. I'm not trying to disparage the ark. The ark was a great gift to the Israelites. It was God's special presence among them. But they trusted it more than they trusted God. I had a friend of mine got engaged recently. So imagine we're getting engaged, and this is a lovely lady. I'm getting engaged, and I give you the engagement ring, and uh, Jordana takes it. We'll call her Jordana. Takes it. This is fantastic. I love it. I love it. Takes off, runs away with the ring. It's like having getting an engagement ring, but valuing the ring over the spouse. That's what Israel did. Israel did. They valued the gift, this precious, beautiful, wonderful symbol that God had given them. More than a symbol. Valued it above God. Anyway, the story goes on. So the Philistines are feeling fantastic about this very surprise win. They're feeling fantastic about the fact that they got Israel's most precious kind of thing. And uh, anyway, so what they do is they have this temple. It's dedicated to a god called Dagon, who was a very popular god back in the days. And uh, they put the ark in, in, the, uh, in Dagon's temple. So there's Dagon. I'm sorry, Jordan. There's Dagon. They put the ark, they put the ark right there. They come back the next day, surprised to find Dagon flat on his face in front of the ark. And they go, oh, what's, what's happened here? Dagon's lying prostrate to the ark. So they prop him up. The next night, the same thing happened. It's a great, you've got to read this story. I'm t- I mean, I'm sort of telling you it, but you should read it. Uh, next night, the same thing happens, but Dagon falls with such force, snaps the head and arms off. And so they try and fix him again. And of course, now, if Dagon could speak, what would he say? I'm just a tree. What are you doing? Somebody just carved a stupid face into an old tree. That's all I am. Don't you know? Don't you know what's in the in the in the in the ark of the covenant here? It's the stone tablets. It's the commandments of God. And the first one says, "You will have no god before me." So the Philistines don't know what to do because because the ark God keeps breaking their gods. So uh, which is, which is uh, you know that's God's business, I think, though, isn't it? Breaking breaking other gods. 
So the Philistines send the ark out to all the cities. They think, well, let's put it on tour. You know, like when somebody wins a cup, like a rugby world cup or something, they tour it around the cities. Terrible idea, as it turns out. Uh, so they tour the, the ark around all the cities and Philistines. And everywhere where the ark goes, uh, the people get tumors and they get infestations of rodents. So they keep moving it around. It's like this, this bomb that's leaking glory and they're just trying to keep moving it. Eventually, they have to send it back to Israel. Okay, why did I tell you that story? What's it got to do with Psalm 24 here? Well, I think it illustrates really well the first six verses. Mainly, there is one God. There is one God. And any attempt to squeeze any other God into your life, into this kind of the sacred space in your heart, where only God can belong, only God belongs, folks, that is not going to end well. And this passage, what it did, you know, yam and aha, it confronted the gods of the age. And we must let it confront the gods of of our age. Because you put another god in there, another god in your heart, that's not the god of Jacob, that's not the Lord Almighty, folks, it's not going to go well for you. Oh. Let me, let me just give you a few examples here. And this is something I've sort of read before, and I'm paraphrasing uh, somebody else. But the God that, that is the wrong God, it could be a good thing, it could be a positive thing, but it's a category area. You've made it the ultimate thing in your life instead of a wonderful gift like the ark was. If your God is your spouse... You make that the ultimate thing in your life, you'll end up being unhealthily dependent, jealous, and controlling. If your God is your career, you'll either become a workaholic or really boring. Or if you're not very good at it, just kind of depressed. If God is money, you'll be jealous of others that have more or unethical in your approach to getting it. If your God is pleasure, you'll become addicted to something. If it's approval, You'll be constantly hurt by criticism. If your God is something like quite noble, like the pursuit of social justice, which is a wonderful thing, but if you make it your God, you'll divide the world into the good people and the bad people, and ironically, you'll let yourself be controlled by your enemies because without them, you've got no purpose. If you center your life around the trappings of religion or morality, Well, it'll go one or two ways. If you manage to live up to your standards, you'll be self-righteous and proud and cruel. And if you don't live up to your standards, you'll just uh, go through life with crippling guilt. See, any other attempt to get another God into your life, into that sacred space where only God belongs, the ultimate place in your heart, it's it's not going to go well. Back to the ark story. For the Israelites, it was the ark. For them, it was a magic box. They basically wanted to use the box to further their own objectives. Their idolatry was an idolatry of the self. I mean, God was kind of in the mix, but more of as, as a facilitator for what they wanted. To use, to use a sort of modern phrase, they were photobombing Christianity. They were trying to make it all about them by jumping in the picture. Hey, it's, it's all about me. Now, we don't want to do that. Now, the goal is this, is we want to be people that glorify God, not ourselves. We want to be able to join the pilgrims in verses 7 to 10 and say, who's the, king of the, who's the king of glory? It's the Lord. It's only the Lord in our life. It is nothing else. 
The thing about verses 7 to 10 when you read them, and they're so lovely, is that you find as you read them, there is a, um, there is a joy about these verses. You can imagine people shouting them out, who's the, king of the who's the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. There's a joy about this. There's, there's another great story in, in 2 Samuel this time, 6 about the ark. And, uh, let me remind you of it before we finish here. So it's, it's just been returned from the Philistines. And it's sitting in this, in this family's, nice family's living room in this kind of small town for a while, a couple of decades. And David wants to return it to Jerusalem, to put it into the temple, return God to the center, symbolically return God to the center of the city. So he organizes this big party, and they're bringing it in, and they're pulling it on a cart with an ox, and there's music, and there's dancing, and it's all going really well until there's a dead guy beside the, beside the ark. And what had happened is uh, the ox had sort of tripped a bit, and the ark started to fall, and, and so this guy Uzzah reached out to steady the ark, and uh, he died when he touched it. He was killed when he touched it. And the $64 question is why? Why did Uzzah die? Well, in the book of Numbers, it's laid out very specific, specifically how you transport the ark. It had to be covered. You know, it's not a spectacle. It had to be carried. There were these special rings he carried on these poles. It had to be carried by Levites, which is the priestly class. You couldn't touch it, of course. And in the beginning of the story, this story here, David doesn't, he disregards all these rules. And the rules weren't arbitrary. arbitrary. They were not the rules of a grumpy old man sort of being protective of his special things. Like, Don't touch, leave it alone. Don't touch, you know, it's none of, none of that. The rules around the ark were, were a kindness. The, wall, the rules were there to protect God's people. Like we've said, when you come into the presence of the ark, you're experiencing the very real presence of God, which means, and here's the important thing, you're being confronted by God's holiness. And these guys were not taking the holiness of God seriously. They were playing fast and loose with the presence of God in their life. Do you know what that's like? Playing fast and loose with the presence of God in your life, treating it casually. And it didn't end well. Now David learned from this. And he brought the ark in again, and he did it properly this time. In fact, one of the things that says he does is every six steps he makes a sacrifice. And he makes a sacrifice recognizing that there's this giant chasm between God and his people, but that God has made a provision for that. And what comes of that? Well, the... You read the story, it says joy. Joy comes of that. When we really understand the chasm and we really understand the provision that God has made for us, there is a dance about our lives. And that's what, that's what David does. It says that before getting to the temple, David dances in front of the ark all the way there. And it says in 2 Samuel, it says he dances with all his might and he dances with just his ephod on, which is his loincloth. And the detail is very telling here. It says he strips down to just a loincloth. So he's probably in his kingly regalia, and he gets all of the stuff that he's wearing that says, I'm in charge, he gets rid of it. And David has written this psalm, Psalm 24, for this occasion, for this very occasion. Who is the king of glory? It's not him. It's not David. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, the God of Jacob. I love this psalm. I think it's just fantastic. 
And when you put it into its context, it brings together these two things which we should always hold together in our relationship with God, and that is uh, fearfulness and great gladness. And I see it in this passage. That we must pursue God with holiness. We must pursue holiness in our life. Recognize he has made provision for us. And shout, who is the king of glory? Now, how do we view this through the lens of the New Testament? Well, very simply, and I'll finish here. What God did symbolically and temporarily with the ark, he does permanently with Jesus. So the ark is the shadow. It can't contain all of God's glory. Uh, all of his glory is revealed in Jesus. You know, If the ark is the engagement ring, the ark is the symbol, Jesus is the reality. Psalm 24, all of God's promises of Psalm 24 are revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of all in verses 1 to 2. He lived the perfect life required in 3 and 4 so that God would achieve salvation for us, which he promises in verse 5 and 6. And he's the king of glory in verses 7 to 10 that we proclaim together. Amen.